Morning, Kerrville Church. Morning. How are all of you? Good. Some of you uh, last week uh, referenced the blessing that we shared together last week. May the peace of the Lord Christ go with you wherever he may send you. And ask uh, if there might be a copy of that available. So I brought one. First one up here gets it. So we'll see the mad day. No, I'll, I'll set it down here and perhaps if, if there are several of you who want a copy, there can, we could arrange for some copies uh, to be made. Happy Father's Day. Happy Juneteenth celebration this Sunday morning. We are grateful for both of these uh, celebrations and I'm delighted this morning. Uh, Clark, I was a little confused when you started. Uh, maybe it was the combination of the bow tie and the presentation, but I get it. It was dad jokes. <laughs> you were going after dad jokes. Where's Clark? I don't see him. Maybe he's... Okay, good. No, don't tell, him I, don't tell him I said that. It was dad jokes. Uh, much to be grateful for, don't we? Much to be thankful for. I'm thankful this morning that my father is able to be here. He was here last week. Some of you may have met my dad. I'm thankful for my dad. <laughs> thankful that my son-in-law is here. His name is Darius, and uh, my daughter Emily and their beautiful daughter Lorelai are here. This is Father's Day number two, right, Darius? Father's Day number two. And I can also tell you, uh, from our Juneteenth celebration yesterday that uh, the lemon pepper wings on the pit were awesome. So a lot to be, a lot to be thankful for and to celebrate uh, this day. Let's stop again for a moment and just in the silence acknowledge God's presence, pray for God's leading, for the Spirit's work in our hearts and minds, as we begin today. Would you bow with me for a moment? God, we pray that you would still our hearts. We confess to you that there is much that crowds in around us, presses in hard on us, makes its way into our minds and into our hearts and doesn't leave much room for you. And so we pray that in this moment you would still our hearts that we might make room for you and make room for your Spirit's work in us. We pray that you would open our eyes that we might see. Open the eyes of our heart that we might know you more fully, not just about you, but know you more fully. Open our minds that we might comprehend who you are and that your work of grace might be complete in us and you might raise us up to go in the way of Jesus. This is our prayer. We pray that your word would be ever before us, lamp to our feet, light to our path. In the name of Jesus, amen. amen. It's a bit of an odd story, isn't it? If you think about it. Jesus comes to this little village, Bethsaida. His disciples are with him, and there's a blind man there. Blind man comes before Jesus with expectations. Maybe he's heard the story of how Jesus has healed others. And Jesus reaches out, touches the blind man, and then asks him this question, which is a strange question for Jesus to be asking. Jesus said, well, do you see anything? I don't know how you hear that, but I hear that. Um, did it work? 
And you know what his answer is? If you listen closely to the reading, the answer is, well, kind of. <laughs> I see people, but it's all kind of fuzzy. They look like trees walking around. And Jesus touches him a second time, and then it says he can see clearly. It's a strange story, isn't it? I don't know. I begin thinking about why. Maybe there's some sort of divine power outage between heaven and earth and Jesus, something gets in the way and he doesn't quite get the full measure. Maybe ERCOT has taken over divine healings. I don't know. Or maybe uh, you might surmise that the problem's on the receiving end and this fellow who's blind, maybe he just doesn't have quite enough faith to get him the whole way there. Or the people gathered around, maybe they don't have enough faith to get him the whole way there. Probably not. But it is an odd story, isn't it? Did you know that this story of Jesus healing the blind man, where he has to touch him twice before he can really be healed of his blindness, only occurs in the Gospel of Mark? You don't find it in Matthew, you don't find it in Luke, you don't find it in John, it's only in Matthew. Now there are other healing stories of blind people in Matthew and in Luke and in John, but only in Mark do you get this particular story where Jesus touches the guy twice in order to get the job done. Only in Mark. And what's more, Mark drops this story right in the center of his gospel. Anyone? You... You've only heard me preach once before, but you know I'm fond of these little Bible quizzes in the middle of sermons. Anyone know how many chapters are in the Gospel of Mark? Now you're getting your Bibles out and trying to cheat. Anyone know how many chapters? There are 16 chapters in the Gospel of Mark. And I know that when Mark wrote this, and it, it was recorded and compiled and all of that, that it didn't have all the chapters and verses, but still, this story happens in chapter 8. Right in the middle of chapter 8, right in the center of Mark's gospel, as if he drops it down right squarely in the middle, like this black line that runs down the middle, half court, right in the center, drawing our attention to this story, right in the center. The man who cannot see, and then can kind of see, and then finally can see clearly. And I don't think it's an accident that Mark's the only one that tells this story. It's only in Mark's gospel that Mark places it in the center of his gospel. I don't think it's an accident. I think Mark, in his telling of the Jesus story, is drawing us toward this moment right in the middle of Mark's gospel. A moment kind of, kind of like this. Now, I've got a video queued up, and we'll see if it works here. Kind of like this moment. So let's see if we can roll that video. We got the baby's first pair of glasses. He already hates it. Christian. Christian. Open your eyes, buddy. Hi. 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 Hi, Munchkin. <laughs> you like them? Like oh. Hi. You like them, huh? I love that. How many of you have seen those videos before? I like this one in particular. Did, you, did anyone happen to catch the little baby's name? 
Hey, Christian. Hey, Christian, can you see? He's not sure at first. And then he hears, when, when does it lock in? He hears mom's voice, hey, munchkin. And he lights up, the world lights up. I love a moment like that. It's as if Mark's leading us to a moment like that. For some of us, it comes a little later in life. I don't know. Since it's Father's Day, I think I've got a little grace, so I'll tell a story of my wife. Could be trouble. She's had perfect vision for most all of her life. Not only 2020, but whatever that is, 2022 or whatever, where it's better than perfect, you know. And I'm like, mm, since I was a kid, not quite that young as Christian, but I've had glasses or contacts. But here lately, I'm telling you, she's got the reading glasses. I'm not delighting in that. I'm not, you know, celebrating that. But I'm just saying she's got the reading glasses. She has them on top of her head most of the time. And I love those moments when she has several pairs. She just took them off the top of her head. She's got them on top of her head. And she needs to see something. And she says, where's my reading glasses? I, I don't know. I like to say, I don't know. And she finds another pair and puts it on. So she's got a pair on and a pair on top of her head. Anybody relate to this? I'm not just making fun of her. I'm making fun of all of you. <laughs> Something about our sight that matters, and it matters a lot, doesn't it? And I think that Mark is leading us to this moment on purpose, drawing us into this story at the center on purpose. Look here, what happens in chapter 8, the beginning of chapter 8, begins with Jesus here feeding the multitude. You know this story? The crowd, the disciples are with Jesus, the crowd's all there. He feeds the multitude with seven loaves and a few fish. And then after all that's done, the disciples and Jesus get into the boat to cross to the other side, it says. And on their way, he warns them. He says, hey, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. And the disciples look around at each other. Take this in, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. And they say, ah, oh, it's because we don't have any bread. You're supposed to chuckle right there. <laughs> the disciples are like clueless. It's because we don't have any bread. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees, because we don't have any bread. And what does Jesus say to them? This is verse 17, if you're following along in chapter 8. Jesus says, do you still not, somebody read it. Do you still not see? And then he says, do you still not, there it is, art, understand. Do you still not see? He's connecting sight to understanding, and these guys are clueless. Wait, but they've been with Jesus from the beginning. We'll talk about that in just a minute. They've seen and heard more than anyone else. And here we are, Jesus asking, do you still not see? Do you still not understand? And right after that, they come to Bethsaida, where there's this blind man that Jesus has to touch twice, do you, asking him the same question. Do you see anything? Well, kind of, but not really. And then he touches him again. Do you see now? You see what Jesus is doing? See what Mark is doing? Leading us to this moment. And then after that, if you're following along in chapter 8, Jesus turns to them. They're on their way to Caesarea Philippi, and he says, Who do people say that I am? 
And they say, well, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. And Jesus nods his head back and forth and says, but wait, but who do you say I am? Not who do others say that I am. Who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, oh, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God that he says. And Jesus says, you're right. Right answer, Peter. Hoping that Peter sees. And then Jesus goes on. Listen to this. This is chapter 8, verse 31, and begins to teach them what it means that he's the Christ, that he's the Messiah. He taught them, saying, The Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed. After three days, he will rise again. He said this quite plainly to them, it says. Clearly to them. He says it clearly to them. And what does Peter say? No! That's not it at all. Do you see anything? It's as if this is a story about a blind man that's also a story about Peter that's also a story about the disciples. It's because we have no bread. That's also a story about us. About us. Mark begins the very beginning of his gospel. He begins with an announcement. Did you notice, have you ever noticed this, that in Mark, there's no angels in the night sky announcing the birth of Jesus there's no heavenly messengers coming to Mary or coming to Elizabeth. There's no wise men in Mark's gospel. Did you know there are no wise men in Mark's gospel? Let me just say that one more time in light of this thing that's going on with the disciples. There's no wise men in Mark's gospel. Some wise guys. But it just starts with this announcement, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, and it's off and running. And then immediately, Jesus is inviting these disciples to come and follow. Come and follow immediately. And immediately, they drop their nets. And they leave their father behind. And they take off after Jesus. Why? Why do they leave so quickly, so willingly? It's because they think they see exactly who he is. He's the Messiah. And if he's the Messiah, and he's the Messiah that... We want, this is going to be a great ride. Who wouldn't want to sign on for that? Count me in, Jesus. I'll leave everything because we're moving on up, and this is going to be great. That's why they leave. Not because they don't know who Jesus is, but because they think they know exactly who Jesus is. Mark says, look, from the beginning, you see but you don't see clearly. These followers, these first followers, these disciples of Jesus are blinded by their own preconceived notions of a Messiah fashioned in their own interest. Fashioned in their own interest. Did you know that in Mark's gospel, the, one, the ones who seem to see are not the ones you expect? In chapter 1, you can turn there, but you can just Track with me because I'm going to hop around a little bit. In chapter 1, 
Jesus is in the synagogue, and there's a man there who has an evil spirit. And Jesus throws the evil spirit out of the guy. And then he says, I know who you are. The man with the evil spirit. As Jesus comes to cast the evil spirit, I, say, I know who you are. Later in that same chapter, Jesus, it says Jesus heals many sick and demon-possessed. And Mark has this comment on his healing of the sick and the demon-possessed. He says, they knew who he was. They see. And then in chapter 3, there's an evil spirit. And the evil spirit, confronted by Jesus, says, you are the Son of God. He sees. And then in chapter 5, there's this demoniac. And the demoniac says, what do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? He sees. Look, in Mark's Gospel... Those who see clearly are not the ones you expect. And the ones who don't see are the ones you think, well, they should see. It's the insiders who can't see, and it's the outsiders who see clearly in Mark. Isn't that interesting? It's the insiders who don't see, who are blinded by their own preconceived notions of a Messiah, wrapped in political power and fashioned in their own interests. Now, you might notice that I look down to read that sentence, so I'm going to read it again. They don't see, the insiders, the ones closest to Jesus, don't see because they are blinded by their own preconceived notions of a Messiah wrapped in political power and fashioned in their own interests. It's the outsiders who see and the insiders who don't. And the best I can tell, most of us here this morning, insiders are outsiders. Time for confession, church. We are the insiders. God, help us to see. What are they missing? What are we so often missing in our half-sided stumblings about, even in church? Look, here in Mark 8, verse 31, what does Jesus begin to teach them? About who he is, what he wants them to see. The Son of Man must undergo great suffering, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed after three days, rise again. He says it very plainly. Peter rebukes him. A little later, Peter rebukes him. Jesus brushes off Peter and says, If anyone wants to become my followers, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. That's what he's trying to get them to see. So much so that, hey, flip over to chapter 9. That teaching, 831. Chapter 8, verse 31. Look at 931. 931. What does Jesus begin to say to them again? It says, He was teaching His disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is to be betrayed into human hands. They will kill Him. After three days being killed, He will rise again. It's the same thing. 831, 931 message. And then guess what? 
right after he tells them this in 1033. James and John, sons of Zebedee, came forward and said, Teacher, we, we want to ask you a favor. <laughs> when you come into your kingdom, can one of us sit on your right hand and one of us sit on your left hand? They're not just talking about seats at the dinner table. When you come to Jerusalem and you come into your kingdom, into your power, into your influence, can one of us be Secretary of State and one of us be Secretary of Defense? Because that's what we're after, positions of power in the kingdom. And do you know what Jesus says in response to that? The cup that I drink, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? Well, we're able. They're as eager as they were when they dropped the nets and left. The cup that I drink, you will drink. In the baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized, but to sit at my right hand or left hand, you don't even know what you're talking about. You don't even know what you're talking about. So look, they don't see, do they? Like most of us insiders, we think we got Jesus. We got Jesus. Yes, we do. We got Jesus. How about you? Red Rover, Red Rover. Send the Jesus that we want on over. We don't see. Follow this story through to the end. I don't know how long I've been preaching, but there's a clock back there. there. I found it now. But just follow the story all the way to the end. Mark 14. It's two days before the Passover in Bethany. He's at the home of a man named Simon the leper. So just let that sink in for a second. Those of you, of us all who've endured plagues and such, pandemics and such, he's at the home of the man named Simon a leper, and a woman comes with a very expensive jar of alabaster perfume. She makes her way right there. A couple things here. That day. Period. Because she brings the jar of perfumes. She walks right there in the middle of all of them. She breaks open the jar of perfume and she begins to anoint Jesus. Now, do you know what this oil is for? What the anointing oil is for in this case? A couple of things. One is you anoint kings, leaders. And you know who else you anoint? The dead. The dead. And Mark says that they're offended because it's expensive. Yes, it's expensive. Because the anointing oil for the dead is not ordinary. It's likely kept for generations and handed down, preserved and kept. It's expensive. It's the best. And here she is anointing Jesus. What an affront. They're not offended because it costs a lot of money. They're offended because she's, she, because she's preparing him for burial. And that's not the Jesus they signed up to follow. That was two days before the Passover. Two days 
later at Passover. Jesus is in an, at another house in another room. It's upstairs, this room. He's with his disciples for the Passover. And he looks, they, they've done this before, but he looks at them this time. And he takes the bread and he breaks the bread and he gives it to them. And he says, I'm taking a little bit of liberty here, okay? Don't look in your Bibles. He says, look here. Look here. This is my body. Broken. And he takes the cup. And he pours it out. And he says, look. This is my blood. The new covenant. For many. For all. It's the same thing he's been saying. 831. 931. 10. 33. Bread broken. Wine poured. Take it and eat it. Because when you take it, you're receiving this gift. This is who I am. And when you take it into yourself, you are saying that you will go in this way too. You will be broken and given too for the sake of each other, for the sake of the world. This is who we are. You take this cup and when you drink it, remember back with James and John, when you drink it, you are saying this is the blood of Christ, not just the blood that you're receiving this gift, but that you will be poured out too for the sake of each other. And you know what happens immediately after that? They all scatter. Peter's denial, the rest of the disciples go here and there. Why? Because for the first time, they see it clearly. It's not what they expected. It's not what they wanted. And so they leave it. That's not the Jesus we thought That's not the Messiah we thought was following. I think they leave in that moment not because they can't see anymore, but because they finally do. God, help us to see. I don't know what we think all of this is about. If not, when you boil it down to its essence, following the Jesus who persistently, consistently, will not be deterred, will love and give Himself for the sake of others, no matter who they are, or where they're from, or what they've done, or what they think, or what they believe, I could go on with that list, but I'm going to stop right there before I get myself in trouble. This Jesus loves and breaks himself open to let the love of God pour through him for the sake of others. Amen. This is who Jesus calls us to be. God help us to see. Let me tell you one quick story. Ken Blanchard, in his book, uh, We Are the Beloved, tells the story about a family with a little four-year-old girl named Sashi. And Sashi is so excited because she's getting ready to have a little baby brother or sister. And in the lead-up to this, as she anticipates with great enthusiasm uh, the arrival of this little one, little sibling, she keeps asking mom and dad this curious question. She keeps saying, now, when the baby comes, can I hold the baby? Okay. 
Well, yes, with supervision. <laughs> when the baby comes, can I talk to the baby? Yes, you can talk to the baby. When the baby comes, can I be alone with the baby? But she kept asking, Sasha. Kept asking. And then when the baby was finally born and they were excited and everyone was back home and the family could finally be alone with each other, they all gathered around and guess what Sasha's questions were? Can I hold the baby? Can I speak to the baby? Can I be alone with the baby? And so they took the baby into Sasha's room, laid the baby on the bed, and they said, okay, this is your moment. And they backed off slowly, making sure everything was okay. They stepped outside the door. But, you know, you're not going to go far where they can still kind of see and hear. Oh, this was Sashi's moment. Sashi leaned over close, right in the face of the baby, and whispered these words. Sashi says, baby, tell me what God I'm already beginning to. Already beginning to We are already beginning. And our deepest longing is to know the love of God. That's receding from our memory so much gets in our way and clutters our vision, fills our hearts and minds. We forget. God, help us see clearly. You're already forgiven. God, we come to this moment with this prayer on our lips. Open our eyes. We want to see Jesus. We confess that it's hard for us to see. Forgive us where we are so bold in thinking that we see and know all things clearly. That even in our devotion to you, we are blinded by our own misguided preconceptions. Help us to see. And to receive this gift as you gather us up now around this table, taking bread, broken, body of Christ, sharing it with each other, and pray that we too might be broken and given for the sake of the world, for the sake of each other, for your sake. Taking this cup, sharing with each other the blood of Christ and saying in that moment, help us to see so that we too might be torn out to love each other like Jesus loves, to love the world like Jesus loves. God, help us to see We pray in the name of the one who loves us with an everlasting love.